So we've arrived in Luke chapter 10 this morning. And um, what we're going to be looking at is a story here in Luke that isn't found in any of the other Gospels. It isn't found in Matthew, Mark, and it isn't found in John. In this particular story here, it's what we're going to be reading about is the time Jesus sent 72 unknown disciples on a mission to preach and to heal. Now, some of your translations may say just 70, but depending on, on, um, on the manuscript or how you look at it, um, a translation of the manuscript, it's, either, it's pretty much the same thing. Some will say 70. This, our particular version here, will say 72. Um, but Jesus sends them out on a mission. So what we're going to be seeing here is if you've ever asked the question, what do Christians do? What is their purpose? And, and there may be some, some of you out there that are wondering that question or asking that question. Well, our passage today will answer part of that question for you. And what you'll discover is that we are God's ambassadors sent to represent him in this world, in our community, in our workplaces, in our schools, wherever we're at, we're his ambassadors and we are to represent him. So this morning's message, hopefully, will challenge you to discover if you really are representing Jesus or if, in fact, you're representing this world. So uh, let's open up with a word of prayer the Lord to speak to us this morning. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for having us today, Lord. Um, thank you for everyone that made their way here. That they um, pray for those that couldn't make it. May you bless them uh, um, abundantly as well, Lord, and and uh, may they hear from you throughout the week, and 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 may they respond, Lord, uh, accordingly to what you have to what you have to say to them. Uh, bless this message where I'm about to to share, Lord. Use it in a mighty way. Speak to everyone here that needs to hear from you, Lord. Those who are hurting, those who just are confused, and those who just uh, are just at a place where they. They need to hear from you, Father. Um, fill this room with your spirit. And again, just open up hearts and minds and, and soften them as well. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 this morning. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. The Word of God says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he told them, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now go. I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't carry a money bag, traveling bag, or sandals. Don't greet anyone along the road. Whatever house you enter, first say peace to this household. If a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they offer. 
for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't move from house to house. When you enter any town and they welcome you, eat the things set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near, t- near you. When you enter any town and they don't welcome you, go out into the streets and say, we are wiping off even the dust of your town that clings to our feet as they witness against you. Know this for certain. The kingdom of God has come near. I tell you that, that, that day, on that day it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre, Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at, that, at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, would you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. And whoever rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. Chapter 10 begins in almost the same way chapter 9 began. However, instead of sending 12 disciples on another northern mission tour, here we learn that our Lord turns to a larger group of followers to deliver his message, this time to the south, to the towns and villages that were along the route that Jesus was following to Jerusalem. Why? So why did he send 72 anonymous disciples ahead of him, ahead of him in pairs and not just the 12 apostles? Well, Jesus knew that the time was short before his crucifixion, and there were still a lot of places where people hadn't yet heard his message. And if you think about it, that's exactly what the Christian mission is. Preparation for Christ to come into lives, into towns, and finally to come again into this world. Now, although these unnamed men were called apostles, were not called apostles. They were sent, they were still sent. And the Greek word for that is apostolo. They were still sent with a commission to represent the Lord. Thus, even though that title wasn't assigned to them, they were given the honor to be true ambassadors of the king. A title that is or was just as dignified as that of an apostle. We're told in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. So, since again, we are also ambassadors of Christ. As Christians, as believers, as, as representatives of Christ, we are ambassadors and we are presenting him. And likewise, just because believers like you and I aren't necessarily called apostles or we're not apostles, our Savior has commissioned us to do the same wherever we're at. 
whether, again, as I mentioned earlier, whether it's in our workplaces, in our schools, um, whether it's when we're, we're playing a sport with our teams, um, anywhere and everywhere the Lord has us, we are his representative. We're commissioned to do the same. He has commissioned us. Now, that great commission is, is found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And there he said this. Now, listen closely. Again, this is the great commission that he's given us. And he gave this right before he went to heaven. There he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing, in, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Jesus then uses the analogy of a ripe field of grain to explain why he felt an increased urgency about his work. He considered the multitude of humanity to be like a harvest field ready for gathering, but also added that there weren't enough workers to do the job. The intended purpose wasn't so that they'd struggle, but rather that they depend on him and pray that others would join them in that harvest. Here, again, Jesus paints a picture of massive fields ripe for plucking, but with only a few workers. So what are we to do? The field out there, too, in the, in the world we live in, is ripe, and he wants us to go out for the gathering, to, to gather. Well, this is what he tells us we ought to do. We're to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers to the field. And after following the injunction of verse 2 to pray, don't be surprised if you are called to obey verse 3 to go. Pray and pray for the Lord to harvest souls in your neighborhoods. And when he does that, when you pray for that, don't be surprised again if he calls you to do it. Pray seriously for the area of the world which your heart is drawn. And, and when you pray for that, he also will send you out. Also, when you pray that he send out more workers to the field that he's put us in, we must be willing to accept who he sends. You see, he's the owner of the field, and he sets the standards and the job requirements. We can't be, cho we, as his chosen workers, we can't be choosy about those whom God selects and who he sends. After commanding them to go, the Lord also informs them that their mission would put them in hostile territory where they'd be like, where they'd be like lambs among wolves. By saying this, he was letting them know that although they'd be surrounded by dangerous people who are going to want to harm them, hurt them, kill them, to devour them, they needed to trust God for protection. C.H. Spurgeon put it like this. After all, the mission of the sheep 
to wolves is a hopeful one, since we see in the natural world that sheep, though so feeble, by far outnumber the wolves who are so fierce. The day will come when persecutors will be as scarce as wolves and saints as numerous as sheep. Thereafter, in verses 4 to 12, Jesus gives them specific instructions on what they were to do and say wherever God had them. And he first lays out the guidelines in verses 4 through 8. They were to travel light by not, by not taking a money bag, a traveling bag, or sandals. And to avoid being distracted by social greetings along the road. They were instructed to bring a blessing of peace to whatever household they entered, if the home would receive it. If they did, then God would bring wholeness, blessing, and harmony to that home. But if they didn't, then they wouldn't be receiving God's blessing. They were not to seek personal advantages on the way, to accept whatever provisions were available, The focus here, again, is on the mission and not on personal needs and desires. This would help them trust that God would provide through the generosity of others. Additionally, they were told not to regard the support given to them as charity, but as proper payment for their work on behalf of God's kingdom. In verses 9 through 11, Jesus gives them their mission, their objective. Heal the sick and preach the gospel. As ambassadors of peace, they were to bring healing to the sick, deliverance to the possessed, and the good news of salvation to lost sinners. Like Joshua's army of old, they first proclaimed peace to the cities. But, If a city rejected the offer of peace coming from God's ambassadors, then it chose judgment. To vividly illustrate the severity of their decision to reject the message or reject Christ, the messengers were to use the symbolic art of wiping off that town's dust from their feet. One scholar, Pate, said the phrase at the end of verse 11 Come near to you. In ancient Greek is the word engekin and can mean arrived in the sense of already present. Or it can mean draw near in the sense of, 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 of about to appear. It may be that the remarkable display of God's power in the work of the 72 was meant to prepare people for the ultimate revelation of God's power and kingdom in the soon death and resurrection of Jesus. And as Jesus spoke these words, he was reminded in verses 12 through 16 of three ancient cities that had been judged by God and used them to to warn three cities of his day. See, the three Galilean cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum had been, given, had been given more privileges 
than the three ancient cities of Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon. They had seen, these cities had seen powerful miracles in their streets and had heard Jesus' glorious teachings. They were there, they saw him, the Savior, the, the, the maker of heaven and earth. He was there and they were, he was in their presence and they heard him speak. They actually heard God speaking. Thus, because of that, they had a greater responsibility. Yet, in the end, they utterly refused him. The Lord said that if the miracles that he had done in Chorazin and Bethsaida had been done in ancient Tyre and Sidon, those seacoast cities would have repented long ago. But because they were unmoved by Jesus' works, their judgment would be more severe than that. That's what happened to those cities. Now, as a matter of historical fact, Chorazin and Bethsaida have been so thoroughly destroyed that their exact location is not definitely known today. Now, regarding Capernaum, which was Jesus' hometown after moving from Nazareth, it was exalted to heaven in privilege. But because it despised its most notable citizen and missed its day of opportunity, the Lord said that it would go down to Hades in judgment. Jesus closed his instructions by telling the 72 in verse 16, to anticipate rejection, but as his ambassadors, not to take it personally. A rejection of them is really a rejection of him who sent them. He then adds, and whoever rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. And who was the one who sent him? Servants and ambassadors of, uh, of God, it's helpful for us not to hold on either, either to praise or rejection too tightly. If you're truly representing your master, the su- success or rejection of your work is more due to him than to you. Therefore, your greatest concern shouldn't be with a success or rejection, with success or rejection, but with properly representing your master, with properly representing Jesus Christ. Paul pointed this out to Timothy when he said in 2 Timothy 2.4, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the commanding officer. Well, the passage we just looked at, we saw how the Lord sent out 72 ambassadors on a mission to heal and to preach. In the next passage we're about to read, we're going to see the results of their mission tour and learn a couple lessons on discipleship. So turn with me back to Luke chapter 10 and read along as I pick up verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. 
he said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the, and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing at all will harm you. However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and reveal, and reveal them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and the one and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone whom the Son desires to reveal him. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see the things you see, but didn't see them. To hear the things you hear, but didn't hear them. When the 72 returned from their mission that Jesus had sent them on, they reported their experiences with just joy. They were absolutely happy about everything that, that happened. They had endured hardships, the suffering, and the rejection. But they had also enjoyed some wonderful blessings of effective service. Among their many spiritual accomplishments, the one that surprised them the most was that demons had submitted to them in Jesus' name. Now, this was an unexpected, unexpected blessing because if you look back at what Jesus told them to do, the Lord hadn't originally commissioned them to cast out demons like he had done with the 12 disciples in the beginning of chapter 9. These 72 disciples learned an important fact that we should all keep in mind. When we boldly do what Jesus tells us to do, we can anticipate that he will bless us in ways that are beyond our expectation. By also saying in your name, it shows that they didn't take the credit to themselves. They knew it was the power and authority of Jesus. Commentator F.B. Meyer wrote this, be sure to rely not on numbers or organization, but on the name of Jesus. Use not as charm, but as representing his living and ascending might. What we see here is also the first lesson on discipleship. The joy of being a disciple. First of all, just as these 72 disciples had come to know the joy of spiritual accomplishment when they completed the task given to them, we can know it too. Whether it's temporary, whether it's Jesus calls you just on a, on a temporary mission, 
Um, it could be at a church where it could be out in the mission field, missions field or wherever it may be, if it's temporary or even if it's lifelong. Even if, if it's he calls you to do something for your entire life, when you accomplish that task that he's given you, when you accomplish that task or mission, there's joy in knowing that you've pleased your master. Now, all of us, we are ha- we're happy when we complete a task that we've, a goal that we've worked hard for. Whether it's a marathon, half marathon, or whether it's learning how to make a new dish, um, learning how to sew or how to crochet, you feel a sense of accomplishment when you learn how to do it and when you do it well. Well, here again, there is no, this kind of joy is greater than that. When you complete a task, a mission that God has given you, there is a greater joy in that. Sinclair Ferguson said this, How can all things be worked together by God for good? The answer is at hand. It is because God's ultimate purpose is to make us like Christ. His goal is to complete is the complete restoration of the image of God in his child. So great a work demands that all resources which God finds throughout the universe so great a work demands all resources which God finds throughout the universe and he ransacks the possibilities of joys and sorrows in order to reproduce in us the character of Jesus. And secondly, just as they had come to know the joy of spiritual victory, we can come to know it as well. Let me also share with you what an unknown author once wrote. Stick with your work. Don't, do not flinch because the lion roars. Do not stop to stone the devil's dogs. Do not fool away your time chasing the devil's rabbits. Do your work. Let liars lie. Let sectarians quarrel. Let critics malign. Let enemies accuse. Let the devil do his worst. But see to it that nothing hinders you from fulfilling the work, the joy, the work God has given you. He has not commanded you to be admired or esteemed. He has never bidden you to defend your character. He has not set you at work to contradict falsehood about yourself, which Satan's or God's servants may start to peddle or track down or to track down every rumor that threatens your reputation. If you do these things, you will do nothing else. You will be at work for yourself and not for the Lord. Keep at your work. Let your aim be steady as a star. You may be assaulted, wronged, insulted, slandered, wounded, and rejected, misunderstood, or assigned in assigned impure motives you may be abused by foes forsaken by friends and despised and rejected of men but see to it with steadfast determination with unfaltering zeal 
that you pursue the great purpose of your life and object an object of your being until at last you can say, I have finished the work which thou has gave it, thou gavest me to do. Now, Jesus responds to their report. And in, it, well, it's rather interesting and may be understood in two ways. First, it may mean that he saw their success in, uh, in earnest. He saw their, in their success in earnest of the eventual fall of Satan from heaven. Again, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown paraphrases words like this. I followed you on your mission and watched his triumphs while you were wandering, while you were wondering at the subjection, well, wandering at the subjection to you of demons in my name. A grander circle was opening to my view. Sudden as the darting of lightning from heaven to earth, lo, Satan was beheld falling from heaven. Now, of course, this fall of Satan is coming when he'll be cast out of heaven by Michael and his angels. According to Revelation chapter 12, verse, verses 7 through 9, this will take place during the tribulation period and prior to Christ's glorious reign on earth. A second possible interpretation of Jesus' words here is a warning against pride. It's as if he were saying, yes, you are quite heady because of the demons, because even the demons have been subject to you. But just remember, pride is the parent of sin. It was pride that resulted in the fall of Lucifer and in, and in his being cast out of heaven. See that you avoid this peril. Furthermore, in verse 19, Christ promised the disciples more power, more power over everything that symbolized evil in this world. See, evil has no hopes of victory. The work of Christ on the cross and the cross-bearing faithfulness of disciples, of the disciples, prove that the heydays of Satan and his henchmen are gone forever. Temptation, suffering, rejection, even the death symbolized by the cross may buffet Christ's followers. But in the final hour, Christ is a victorious judge who rules over the world, judging evil and rewarding his faithful disciples. Nevertheless, the Lord cautioned them not to rejoice in their victories over spirits, but to rejoice that your names, your names are written in heaven. Now, it wasn't wrong for them to rejoice in what was accomplished. His point was that they must have a greater joy. They must have a greater joy in the promise of their own salvation. See, there are subtle dangers connected with success in Christian service, in Christian ministry. Pastor Guzik, David Guzik noted this. Some people get emotionally intoxicated after successful service 
or the display of spiritual power. After God uses them in some way, they are arrogantly impressed with all they did for God. God wants us to always see that He did it for us. What He did for us is always greater than what we could do for Him. It's good for us to be moderate in joy. We have it's good for us to be moderate in, in the joy we have over our talents, our gifts, and our success. As wonderful as their miracles were, the greatest miracle of all will always, was and will always be the salvation of a lost soul. The Greek word translated, translated written means to inscribe formally and solemnly. It was used for the signing of a will, a marriage document, or a peace treaty, and also for enrolling, the enrolling of a citizen. Thus, the perfect tense in Greek means it stands written. So once a saved person, once a saved name stands written in heaven, it's final. It can't be erased. It can't be lined out. It stands forever. Brothers and sisters in Christ, know this. The greatest source of joy has nothing to do with what you've done for Him while you're here on this earth. The greatest joy comes in knowing what He's done for you. That because of his death, your name is or can be written in the Lamb's book of life. And that you are, you are assured a place in his eternal kingdom. The New Living Translation puts Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 like this. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So no one, so none, so none of us can boast about it. Jesus has done all the real, real work, ladies and gentlemen. All you have to do is believe and obey. So the question is, do you know certain that your name is written in heaven for all eternity is your name written in the lamb's book of life if not if you're unsure let me tell you that it can be it will be the moment you surrender your life to jesus christ the moment you allow him to be the lord and savior of your life the moment you become born again that's when your name is written in heaven for all of eternity. And if that's what you want, if that's what you desire at the end here, I will lead you in a prayer to do that. But don't let another day go by without having that certainty. He died for you. He came to give you eternal life. All he wants you to do is admit that you're a sinner to believe that he died on the cross for your sins, to confess him as Lord and Savior, 
believe that, and to believe that he rose from the dead and that now he's sitting at the right hand of God. And one day all of us, all those who believe, whether we're alive or whether we're dead, the Bible says that we will all go up to meet him in heaven. We will all be, one day we will all be with him in heaven for all of eternity. Now earlier we learned that the first lesson of discipleship was having joy in being a disciple. Here now in verses 21 through 24, we learned the second lesson. The blessings of being a knowing disciple. In an expression of joy and praise that sprung from his deep relationship with the Holy Spirit, Jesus turned to his Father, Lord of heaven and earth, to praise him for the gracious revelation of his plans and purpose. The Father hadn't revealed these things to the wise and intelligent. But who did he reveal him to? What does it say there? He revealed it to infants. He uses the world's most innocent with faith, devotion, and unquestionable obedience to testify of his greatness. If you consider yourself an infant of Christ, this isn't a bad thing. Again, consider this. He calls you, he sees you as innocent of faith, innocent in your devotion and unquestionable obedience, and that you're willing just to testify of his greatness. It's like, you know, when you see a little, little child who, had, who uh, sees something he's never seen before, it's like, wow, that's, that's powerful. That's like magic. That's like, you know, that's some, it just blows their mind away. You know, this is how we ought to see God. This is how we ought to see our Savior. Okay, not as magic, but as someone powerful, someone who cares for us, someone that we believe in. We, the world is going to try to confuse us, try to confuse you with, you know, try to make you question God's existence, try to make you question God's love, God's mercy. But what he wants to see from you is your faith, your devotion, and your unquestionable obedience. Again, he uses the world's innocent and encourages them to share his word with others. The intellectuals are too wise, too knowing, too clever for their own good. Their pride blinded them to the true worth of God's beloved son. Our Lord rejoiced that his disciples knew these things new things that no one else had known. Everything that God the Father has, he has placed in the trustworthy hands of God the Son. This isn't obvious to the world because the world knows neither the Father nor the Son. True knowledge of the Son belongs only to the Father and vice versa. True knowledge of the Father only to the Son. 
if you want to know again, if you want to know more about God, you just have to look at Jesus. You just have to hear the words of Jesus. And if you want to know Jesus, again, if you want to know Jesus more, you've got to come to God. Again, the knowledge of the Son belongs only to the Father. They don't, however, God the Father and God the Son, keep this knowledge selfishly to themselves. The Son has come from the Father into the world to reveal who the Father is. So who does the Son desire to reveal this to? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1, verses 26 to 29 tells us, to the weak, the base, and the despised people who have faith in him. Those are the ones that Christ desires to reveal himself to. They then become messengers of this knowledge to others. And as they share it, no one else gets the glory but God. Privately, the Lord told his disciples that they were living in a day of unprecedented privilege. Not only did they know about the Son, but they also had seen things that many prophets and kings hadn't wanted to know and see. They, the disciples, had the privilege of witnessing the miracles to hear the teachings of the hope of Israel and see the climax of God's plan of revelation and salvation. All those prophets and kings from the Old Testament, all those characters that we read there in, in, in those stories in the Old Testament had looked forward to that day, had looked forward to this day, but hadn't been allowed to see it. Here's a question. Have you ever wished you lived in the days of Moses? When you could see the Red Sea parting, the Egyptians drowning, the Shekinah glory glowing. Have you ever wished you could live in the days of Elijah when fire came down from the sky and he rode a chariot into heaven? Jesus says, in effect, they wish they were, they wish they were us. Those prophets, those kings wish they were us because we understand what they could only wonder about. They could only guess at the meaning at what they wrote. The Bible tells us again that we, a lot of the things they wrote, they didn't understand fully. But it was written for us. It was written for this time, the time of when Jesus was living and breathing and it was about the resurrection. It was about his death, his burial, his resurrection. They didn't understand it. But to us now, we do. To the disciples, they did. Believers today, those of us who call ourselves Christians, are also privileged because we now have, a, we have, we now have in front of us, right here in this book, God's Word. We have God's word that gives us a more fuller picture of Jesus. 
in our Bibles, we see how everything comes together. And as we read and as we study it, we are able to have a better understanding of who God is. Again, if you want to understand more about God, all you have to do is read the word of Jesus to see what he did. To, if you want to understand more about God, God's love, all you got, God's love and compassion, all you got to do is look at everything that Jesus did, all his works of compassion and mercy and love. And that'll tell you a lot about God's mercy towards you, towards humanity. You want to understand more, just look to Jesus, read, read his word. It's in there. It says in Psalm 190, verse 130, and gives understanding. Now, considering the work of the 72 disciples, as described in these passages I just read in Luke chapter 10, it shows us ways that we can go into the harvest to serve Jesus and spread his message. The harvest is abundant. We do the work knowing how big the job is. The workers are few. We do the work knowing that we have a key job. Pray the Lord of the harvest. We do, we do the work with a lot of prayer. Now go. We are to actually go and do the work. Like lambs among wolves, we do the work making ourselves vulnerable. Letting God be our strength. Don't carry. We do the work without reliance upon anything except the gospel and the power of God. Don't greet. We do the work not allowing social obligations to hinder our work without being distracted by those who have a tendency to distract us or are maybe doing it on purpose. Um, we just continue on with the work, not letting anything hinder us. Whatever house you enter, we do the work expecting that God will bring help and provision. Eating and drinking what they offer, we do the work not being hung up on minor points. Heal the sick. We do the work looking to minister to the whole person with the power of God. Tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. We do the work preaching that the king and his kingdom are here. When you enter any town and they don't welcome you, go out into the streets. As we do the work, we don't waste our time on those who are rejecting the gospel. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. We do the work remembering whom we represent. The 72 returned with joy. We do the work expecting God to do more than we expect. Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. 
we do the work remembering that Jesus has so much, do- so much joy when we do his work. He's smiling at us. And he has a, his smile from eye to eye, from ear to ear. He's happy. He's joyful when we're doing the work that he calls us to do. Remember these things as you go out into the harvest. Now, in a minute, we're going to celebrate communion together. But before I do, I want to give anyone watching or listening an opportunity to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And as I mentioned earlier, by doing that, you can have that assurance of salvation, that assurance that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. He wants to use you to reach others. He has a whole sphere of people that he wants you to reach. He has great plans for you. But you need to be willing. You need to be, you need to give yourself over to him. That's, they, there can't be any resistance. There can't be any excuses. He wants to use you. And if you want him to, if you want him to be the Lord of your life, and you want to be used by him to reach others, to help others, to lead people to Christ, then again, I, I, he can do that for you if you just are willing to accept him. can be easy just to say yeah yeah I'll volunteer but see it's more than that it's just giving yourself completely over to him again if you're unsure of your salvation don't let another second go by another day go by without having that assurance and if you're ready you're listening again watching and and you're ready to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior wherever you're at, I, I want to lead you in a prayer to do that. So I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. And pray this with all your heart, with all sincerity. Lord, Heavenly Father, forgive me of my sins. I, have, I admit that I'm a sinner and that without you, I'm completely lost. I'm destined for eternal punishment. I believe, God, that you sent your son to die on the cross for my sins. And I confess him now as Lord. I lay my sins there at the cross. And ask you to Wipe them all away, Lord. Cleanse me from within. Now fill me with your spirit so that I may know you, so I may fall in love with you, Lord, so that I may see you truly for who you are. Help me to know you more. 
surround me with people that will guide me, that will show me, but and also strengthen me, Lord, and use me to, to lead others to Christ as well. Thank you for what you did. Thank you, God, for sending your son. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that, I want you to contact us, and we want to lead you on to your next steps of, of faith. Don't hesitate. Don't let another, another day go by without you know, uh, talking to someone about your, your newfound faith and your newfound life, about being born again.